If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Father, what a profound word we have before us today. A truth, sadly, Lord, that I fear has been watered down in our culture to mean all manner of things other than what it truly means. A passage, Lord, that many of us have heard many times. I pray that you will draw us in. May we hear the beating of your heart this morning. And may we understand a little more of your great love. By your Spirit, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dwight L. Moody, who has become a hero of mine somewhat, as I've been reading through his his, uh, biography, he wrote, I was staying with a party of friends in a country house during my visit to England in 1884. On a Sunday evening, as we sat around the fire, they asked me to read and expound some, some portion of Scripture. And being tired of the services or after the services of the day, I told them, ask Henry Drummond, who was one of the party. After some urging, he drew a small Bible from his hip pocket, opened it at the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and began to speak on the subject of love. Moody says, it seemed to me that I had never heard anything so beautiful. And I determined not to rest until I brought Henry Drummond to Northfield to deliver that address. Since then, I have requested the principals of my schools to have it read before the students every year. The one great need in our Christian life is love. More love to God and more love to each other. And he says, would that we could all move into that love chapter and live there. I like that. Would that we could all move into that love chapter and live there. Now, you may know this, Drummond's classic address was published in a 63-page little book. sits on my bookshelf. I hadn't thought about it for years. I, I pulled it off, it's tiny, it's dusty, it's worn, and I read through it again. And you can, you can buy it now. In fact, before Henry Drummond passed away, it sold 12 million copies worldwide. And all he did was go through 1 Corinthians 13 and talk about the greatest thing in the world. That's what it's called, the book. The greatest thing in the world. But I believe the real draw is not his eloquence and, and his writing. It's the chapter that lies behind it. It's the Word of God here in 1 Corinthians 13. We have come to one of the most beloved, one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. One that is read often, sometimes without any awareness of the truth behind it. It's read at weddings. No doubt you've heard it used as a passage by a pastor at a wedding. 
I tend to shy away from it because it's just so used and overused. I like to go into the Hebrew, you know, if I can at a wedding. But this chapter on love is so well known, even in our culture, even outside. There are many people who hear it and don't even know it's Bible. Don't even understand that. As we look at it this morning, I I pondered how to approach these things. There are so many ways we could do this. We could pick apart every word of every sentence and be here several hours. But the Hawks are playing. (laughs) Actually... I had a real strong sense early on of how we needed to approach this. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, put it this way. This is one of Paul's finest moments. Indeed, let the interpreter beware lest too much analysis detract from its sheer beauty and power. So we need to approach this carefully. Not overdo it. I'll do my best. (laughs) My wife can tell you it's difficult for me not to overdo things. But we need to understand going into this. It is so pivotal, uh, pivotal because the entire Word of God hangs on love. The entire Word of God hangs on love. As my dear sister Deb Seibel said this morning, you know, the Bible without love is legalism. And love without the Bible is liberalism. And she's quite right. The whole thing hangs on love. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses speaking to the people of Israel. Verse 4 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moses said, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So important is this message. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is a life wholly given over to the loving of God. Jesus responded to the lawyer, quoting this exact passage in Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This, Jesus said, is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And I wonder, do people in the world today look at Christians and say, the defining characteristic is love? Is that the standout? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. Love is the issue, my friends. It's not head knowledge. It's not how many scriptures can I quote. It's not where is my position in the church. It's not even going to church that is the issue. It's love. To love God and to love people. And so, as Moody said this morning, we're just going to move into the love chapter and stay there a while. And rest in these words and seek to understand the Lord's intent. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, Paul is responding to the Corinthian church's somewhat zealous fascination with the pneumatikos, or the things of the Spirit. Spiritual things. Spiritual gifts and spiritual ministries and spiritual effects. What God does in and through His people. And they're very excited about these things. In fact, excited to the point that it's a problem and that's why Paul's addressing it. They're more hung up on the spiritual gifts than they are on the real issue. And Paul would correct that. And by the way, I think Paul would no doubt wince if he heard us reading about love as being over and against the spiritual gifts of the preceding chapter and the subsequent chapter. What do you mean? I think it would really bug Paul if he thought that we were taking 1 Corinthians 13 in contrast or opposed to the operations of the Spirit. That is not the case. Love is the whole point. Love is the reason God gives the gifts, gives the ministries, gives the effects of His Spirit. It is His love that provides this for us. 
It is our love within a fellowship of believers that utilizes these things to the glory of the God whom we love and to the ministry and compassion of those with whom we serve. Love is the issue. But if you remove love from it, you have a great big spiritual mess. So it's not written in contrast. As a matter of fact, after addressing several of these gifts and ministries and operations in chapter 12, and before going on in chapter 14 to deal with some apparent abuses of spiritual things, Paul now presents love as the framework in and upon which all these things function. You have to have love or these things will not work. Not as intended. Now, the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 divides very simply into three paragraphs. And Paul seems to be hitting on three major areas, three major themes. And we're going to just follow that through and let that be our guide this morning. The first paragraph, Paul will now deal with the necessity of love. The necessity of love, verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The tongues of men and angels, think about that. Angels have a tongue. They have a language. And or languages because he says it in the plural, so I'm not sure. It's interesting to me. I'd never thought about that. I just assumed they all spoke English. (laughs) King James English, but English nonetheless. Angels have a tongue, and even angels can speak in that glorious, beautiful, otherworldly tongue and still not have love, right? Satan, who would fall, demons, who would be fallen angels who speak with the tongue of angels but have not love. What Paul is getting at here, however, is that a person can speak with great eloquence and even ecstasy. A person can speak using mysteriously beautiful, otherworldly languages, but if there's no love, gong, crash, clang. It's just noise, man. And as Switchfoot sings, if you're adding to the noise, turn off the song. If you're just adding to the noise, shut it down. I can speak with all kinds of eloquence, but if I don't have love, I'm just noise. Verse 2, he goes on, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. This is all that Paul has just been talking about. The issue of wisdom and knowledge and and faith and prophecy, these operations of the Spirit. Paul says, man, I can be moving in these things, but without love, I am void and empty. So, if there's no love, I'm just noise and nada. Just loudness and internal nothingness. What Paul's doing, what the Spirit is doing through Paul here, is he is building up the necessity of love. If you don't have love, everything that we're reading and studying is a waste of your time. Because it's nothing. Love is what makes it what it is. The necessity of love. Verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now that's interesting. What's he talking about there? Acts of kindness, philanthropy, self-sacrifice, charity. I can do all manner of good things in the world, but if I don't have love, it's worthless. It profits me nothing. It gets me nowhere. The way Drummond put it in his little book, charity is only a little bit of love. One of the innumerable avenues through which love can be expressed. And there may even be, and there is, a great deal of charity without love. It is a very easy thing to toss a copper coin to a beggar on the street. It's generally an easier thing than not to do it. Yet, love is just as often in the withholding. I like how he says this. If we really loved the beggar, we would either do more for him or we would do less. It's not just acts of charity. 
in all the good things I do, in all the philanthropy I might get involved with in this world, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Back in June of 1967, there was an interesting broadcast. It was the first worldwide international TV broadcast via satellite ever before. It aired to 14 countries, apparently reached an audience of somewhere between 400 and 700 million people. All tuning in, all watching this. It would have been more, but Russia pulled out at the last minute. The most famous segment of this broadcast closed the show. It was the Beatles' new hit. Performed by the Beatles, dressed in flowing attire, they sat on stools surrounded by flowers and balloons and iconic 60s figures like Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. And John Lennon chewing gum and singing into the microphone saying, All you need is love. All you need is love. I like the song. Actually, it's a pretty cool song. I even like the concept behind it, but if you go and read the lyrics... They're pretty empty. A lot of people like to read in, you know, to lyrics of songs, especially like Beatles songs. They think, oh, they were so brilliant. No, they weren't. John Lennon just liked the turn of a phrase. He even said as much. People read into our music all kinds of things. I just thought it sounded good. All you need is love. There's nothing you can say that can't be done. Nothing you can, I don't know. I mean, it's just kind of this weird back and forth. And then they come to the chorus. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. I like the song. But it misses the point. Filled with nonsense phrases. Lennon himself would even say, nearly a decade later, I still believe all you need is love. (laughs) But I don't believe just saying it is going to do it, you know. I still believe in the fact that love is what we all need. That's two weeks in a row with a British or Irish accent. I'm working on it. But the great problem is that when people recognize the necessity of love, we may all even say, oh yes, all we need is love, so why doesn't it work? Because of number two, the personality of love. You can talk all you want about the necessity of love, and the Spirit introduces this to us, but the love as a principle, get this, love as a principle always fails until you come to know love as a person. The personality of love. As our brother Johan from China once said, very profoundly, I've quoted this before, he said, God is love. Love is not God. But see, we live in a world that has made love God. Humanity has made love into a God. Sometimes that God is lusty and passionate. Sometimes that God is wimpy and tolerant. But always, the love that does not recognize who love is, is a caricature that falls woefully short of the nature and the character of the one true God who is in and of Himself love. Let me prove it to you. The Greek word used throughout this chapter for love, you probably know, agape. Agape is, according to Greek culture, the highest of the words. They have four, specifically four different words for love. There's a fifth one too. But four words for love, and we see those words used throughout the Bible. This one, agape, is the big one. This is the main one. This is the one that the Holy Spirit took a hold of and ceased to express in human terms the divine love of God who is Himself the person of love. He is love. Unconditional love. You see, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. That's 1 John 4, 16. Paul would write, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the proof. The truest manifestation, if you're wondering how do we know God is love, we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the love of God acted out, lived out before our very eyes all the way up to the cross, to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We see the love of God. That manifest, unconditional love, what Paul describes here as the personality of love, listen to it, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, 
Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is not just a sensitive, poetic piece for weddings. And please understand, this is not a set of principles for us to learn how to live out. A set of principles by which we can measure our own ability to love. And see, that's what I was taught. I was told, perhaps you were at some point too, put your name there. Replace the word love with your name and then you can see, you can kind of measure how you're doing in the love in your life. And so I tried it. Rick is patient. And I already was off off base. I failed right there. I'm one word in. I can't get any further. Rick is patient. Uh-uh. Clearly, I don't understand love. How would you do? Go ahead, try it. Put your name in and see where you fall apart. Because every one of us do or will or have at some point. Rick is not patient. Rick is not kind. Rick is jealous. <laughs> Rick, I'm not even going to go on because it's just, it's embarrassing. What are you saying? I'm saying that this is not a paradigm for us to follow. Well, I guess we can, but that's not the point. And that's not, I believe, what Paul is getting at, what the Spirit is getting at. He is describing here a personality. He is describing Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Oh, that works, doesn't it? Jesus is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek His own. He is not provoked. Jesus does not take into account a wrong suffered. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Love is a personality. Love is Jesus Christ. And love has been given in the concrete expression of the very coming of Jesus to die for the sins of the world. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. It's so simple to receive the love of God which He has for you. Now a parallel passage to John 3.16 is 1 John 3.16 where John writes, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. See how John just did that? He personifies love in Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Why? To be better people? To be more philanthropic? No, because He did. And all I'm doing is just following after the pattern set forth by Jesus, who is love in and of Himself. We can look at all of these. We understand the patience of love in the very nature of Jesus, don't we? He is patient. I love the story. He's just come down off the mountain and the apostles are all having a big to-do. In fact, there's a huge argument going on and people are shouting and yelling and people are upset and Jesus comes up to see what's going on, what have they gotten into this time, and you discover that a man has a son who is demon-possessed that often threw his son into the fire or into the water and, and the father is beside himself And he comes to Jesus and says, I asked your apostles to cast out the demon, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus said this, I love these words, Mark 9, verse 19, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And you know what? He's still putting up with this generation. You want to talk about patience. Jesus is remarkably patient. The reason why He has not come back to this earth yet is because He is so patient. And the Father is patient, waiting. Even in the face of this generation's unbelief, He's still putting up with us. We see the kindness of Jesus. Because love is kind. Jesus is kind. We see it in His eyes. I love this story too. 
rich young man comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I, good, good, good teacher, he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, good teacher, what do you call me good for? There's only one good and that's God. Right? Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus begins to list out commandments. And with each one, you can just see the, the young man swell up and finally, finally says, I, I've kept all these. Yes! And Jesus says, Mark ten twenty one. well, it said, looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now see, that wouldn't have been me. Right there, I would have failed on the list because if someone came to me and said, yeah, I kept all these things, and I'd be like, okay, pride, bummer. Let's talk, Captain Covetous. You got issues, dude. You got all your riches and your wealth, and it's a big, fat problem, man. And Jesus, before He speaks a word, Mark tells us, looks at Him with love. That is the kindness of love. And furthermore, not only did Jesus tell Him what He ought to do, but He said, and come follow Me. He offers Him a front row seat in discipleship. Come join us. Because He loved. The patience of love. The the kindness of love. Oh, yeah, but Rick, I see that third one. What about jealousy? You see, I happen to have read the Bible. And I know that God is a jealous God. Love is not jealous. What are you going to do with that? Well, thankfully, I've had time to think about it. (laughs) Exodus 34.14 tells us, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So apparently love is jealous? How does this work? Understand this. Love is not jealous of love is jealous for human love is jealous of I'm jealous of other people I will be jealous of my wife if, if some you know guy with better hair comes over and starts talking to her you know that, that, that feeling rises up well, what's going on yeah. jealous of but see God's jealousy our God who is jealous is jealous It is a completely different thing. He's not jealous of you. He's not jealous of another person, of another being. He is jealous for your best good. For your being with Him. Because He knows the absolute best good for any human being in history is to know Him. He knows that if you know Him, if you walk in His love, not only will your life be better for it, but your eternity is secured. And so He is jealous, absolutely. Jealous for you. Jealous that you would choose Him. That you would follow after Him. He's not jealous of you or me or of someone else. That is human jealousy. And human jealousy, you might put it this way, human jealousy is always self-centered. Godly jealousy is completely others-centered. Which is why in a moment of what you might not think of as love, it truly was love, we see Jesus get His back up. Because Jesus is jealous for the lost of this world. Jealous for those who don't know Him. To know Him and be saved. Matthew 16.21 From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This was from Peter's confession. From that point forward, so the last six months of Jesus' ministry, He was absolutely plain spoken. I'm going to Jerusalem, and there they will crucify me, but it's cool, I'm going to come back from the dead. He told them this. He explained it to them. But Matthew 16.22 tells us Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But He turned and He said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And listen, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. You could even hear Jesus say, you are not jealous with a godly jealousy, but with a human jealousy. And that's not right. And Jesus actually turns to Peter and says such harsh and serious words because the very issue of His coming was one of love. Because God is jealous for, because Jesus is jealous for those who are lost, that they might be saved. 
And the love of Jesus is always that way. Man, you could go through, I'm not going to do it this morning, but I would encourage you to do it. Go through every one of these 17, 15 verbs. Each one speaks louder and more clearly of the personality of love, which is Jesus. You can take them one at a time and you see Jesus proclaimed over and over and over. Ultimately ending in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, the personality of love, Jesus Christ puts up with everything. He puts up with everything. What gives a person the ability to put up with another person? I wonder this sometimes, especially with those I have trouble putting up with. Those I would just as soon put out as put up with. At some point in every relationship, there's a breaking point, isn't there? At some point, it's got to give. Wives, you put up with your husbands long enough and finally it just breaks and you got to get on their case. Husbands, you put up with your wives just long enough until it breaks and you got to go tell another guy about being upset with your wife. <laughs> how long? And how do we put up with it? And what gives us that ability? In Jesus, we see this loving forbearance. Again, we're back to the patience, but it's more than patience. It's endurance. It's the love of Jesus which bears all things. Man, you can throw anything in His face and He will bear it. Endures all things for our sake. He just bears. Jesus Himself said there's one sin that's unforgivable. Now, now, just pause on that for a moment. That in and of itself is remarkable. One sin that's unforgivable? I'm sorry, but in my family there are a number of things that are unforgivable as far as I'm concerned. You don't clean the dish, you just set it on the counter and let it rot there and become like glue on the plate. Unforgivable! You leave the lights burning all night long, so I gotta pay for the electricity. Unforgivable! I got a long list. And my children know it well. Nothing is unforgivable. I want you to think about everything that you've done, every way that you've sinned against God in your life, and pause and recognize forgivable. Because love bears all things. Oh, but what about the one you mentioned there's one unforgivable sin? Yeah, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to say Jesus is not God. Because when you say Jesus is not God, when you get to the point in your life where your heart is so hard that you would reject the very hand of love that is extended to you, at that point, you've crossed into the point of no return. And by the way, I don't even think about those who say, well, man, I, 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 know, I know there was that time five years ago I was so upset and I actually cursed God and, I, was, and I, I, I feel so bad about it. Did I commit the unforgivable sin? And I always ask, but do you still love God? Yes, then you didn't. Because your heart is still toward Him, even if it's in the slightest. And so once again we discover that salvation does not depend on us, but on Jesus who bears all things, who endures all things. And then you note those two little words in the middle, He believes all things and hopes all things, and that may sound odd. Did Jesus have faith? Why would Jesus need faith? If He knew where He came from, and He knew where He was going, and He knew who He was, did Jesus have faith? Absolutely He had faith. We talked about this Wednesday night. Listen, faith is always a manifestation of relationship. I have faith in my wife. I have faith in Cheryl. I trust her. And I can tell you I have more faith in her now after 30 years of marriage than I did in the first year of marriage. Though I had faith in her then, it has increased over 30 years. Why? Because our relationship has increased. And if you want to increase faith in God... If you're one of those who says, Oh, I have such trouble believing. Lord, increase my faith. Then he would say, Spend time with me. Walk with me. Talk to me from time to time. Take in my word. Develop relationship and your faith will increase. You cannot deepen a relationship with God and not have a deeper faith. It goes hand in hand. Did Jesus have faith? <laughs> who had the closest relationship with God of anyone who's ever walked the planet? Jesus did. A deep and abiding human trust in God the Father 
even though He was God the Son, in fact, because He is God the Son, the intimacy of Father and Son is remarkable and it speaks of faith, of trust, one in the other. Jesus said in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And I would call that faithfulness. Did Jesus have faith? Of course He did. Because Jesus believes all things. And that phrase, all things, doesn't mean that Jesus believes in everything. It means He has an everlasting, constant, ongoing faith. A trust that is in God. Okay, but but did Jesus have hope? I mean, He knew all things. Is it hope when you already know what's coming, what's going to happen? You better believe it is. Of course it's hope. Every single time Jesus said, I'm coming back for you, He was declaring hope. Glorious, godly hope. I'm coming again. I will come and receive you to Myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's hope. Not hope like the world thinks of hope. Not wishful thinking, boy, I hope this happens. Boy, I hope the Hawks take it today. I mean, most of us think, no, that's, that's divine hope right there because we're pretty certain it's going to be a good day. But wishful thinking? No. Jesus did not have wishful thinking, but He did indeed have hope. When He said things like Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done, which our office administrator, Yeva, quoted in our staff meeting. Yeva, you keep on quoting that to me, okay? We were praying. I'm going to put you totally on the spot, so duck. We were praying in our staff meeting. Yeva goes, i got to share with you guys. I wasn't going to. I'm a little embarrassed about this, but I feel like the Lord is saying something so clearly, and I am supposed to say it. And we're like, okay, we'll say it. I thought it was going to be, you know, Jake really needs to clean up his act, or something like that. (laughs) She said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. And indeed He is. And when Jesus said that, when He ever quoted it, that's hope. And it is not a hope which disappoints, Romans 5, verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so hope in God is not wishful thinking. Hope in God is absolute assurance of coming good. Jesus coming good. And hope brings us to the final paragraph. Love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The necessity of love, the personality of love, and number three, the longevity of love. The longevity of love. Paul starts to pull off of, again, some of the operations he's been talking about. And he points to prophecy. And he says, you know what? If there are prophecies, they will cease. They will be done away with. There is a day coming when prophecy will be rendered irrelevant. Why? Because it's all been fulfilled. Prophecy only becomes obsolete in fulfillment. Let me give you an example. Many of you know we could sit here this morning and and was there not a Hawks game today, we could take the time and we could detail every single one of over 300 prophecies given centuries if not millennia before Jesus' coming that He fulfilled perfectly. I'm not just throwing something out there. I'll give you some examples if you'd like. Over 300 prophecies of where He would be born, how He would live, how He would die. Things that Jesus Himself would have absolutely no control over unless He was God. Turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1. Just go left a few books. Matthew chapter 1. I'll show you a few things and we'll move on. But prophecy fulfilled. Did you know? I think some of you know this. Some of you may not. Statistically... For one person to fulfill eight prophecies about their life unknowingly, the probability of that happening has been, has been figured out to be one in ten to the seventeenth power. The chances that, that I could fulfill eight prophecies spoken about me before I was born 
One and ten to seventeen zeros after it. In other words, impossible. You can't do it. It's never happened. But for one person, and that is Jesus. Oh, and by the way, it wasn't eight prophecies. It was over three hundred that all spoke of His life, of His birth, of His death, of His resurrection. And the Bible details all of these if you're willing to look for them. Here are just a few that Matthew starts out with. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1 tells us, Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The prophet spoke that 750 years before this gal Mary suddenly became pregnant, though she had never been with a man. A remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. God said in Isaiah seven 14, I'm going to give you a sign. A sign, that is something miraculous, something unheard of, something amazing, and this virgin will be with child. Of course, people, you know, they argue that point. They say, well, the Hebrew word for virgin there is also translated maiden. Yeah, it's a maiden of marriable age, which means a virgin. And if you're not sure, then you just look at the word that Matthew uses in Matthew 1.23. The Greek word is parthenos, which only means a virgin. Mary as a virgin gives birth to Jesus by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous, astounding moment and fulfills prophecy. And that's just the beginning. Look down in verse 6 of chapter 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Micah prophesied that. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was written over 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just as prophesied. Now, David was born in Bethlehem, but that was hundreds of years before Micah came along and gave this future-telling prophecy that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Continue on. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Well, start in verse 14. Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still light. He left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, that's really confusing because if Hosea says out of Egypt I'm going to call my son and Isaiah says, or Micah says it's going to be in Bethlehem that he's born. Well, which is it? Bethlehem or Egypt? Turns out both. Born in Bethlehem and his parents fled to Egypt to hide from Herod. But there's more. Look at verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This prophecy of an astounding thing. That the the children of, of Rachel, that is representing Israel, there would suddenly be a massive mourning in Ramah. Mourning heard in Ramah. Ramah is outside of Bethlehem. And it's said that when Herod decreed that all the firstborn children, all the firstborn males of Israel under the age of two be slaughtered, that slaughter went to about a 12-mile radius around Jerusalem, which would have included Bethlehem and Ramah. And indeed, at the birth of Jesus, which should have been a joyous time, there was a massive weeping going on in Israel because of the firstborn sons who were being slaughtered by the sword. Prophecy fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 and then the last one here in in chapter 2 I love this one verse 23 says he shall be called a Nazarene in fact Matthew says it was to fulfill he came and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene that one's hard to find Unless you're Hebrew and you're reading the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew and you come along to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 and you find out he will be called a branch, a netzar. Netzar, which is the root word for Nazareth. And indeed, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, came out of Egypt, and was called a Nazarene. All prophecy, all obsolete. Obsolete? Obsolete because it's fulfilled. It's done. I gotta, I gotta show you a couple more. Turn over to chapter 4 of Matthew. Verse 12. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He came and settled in Capernaum, Capernaum, which is by the sea. 
And in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Here we go again. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And indeed, Jesus began His ministry in the Galilee. Most of His ministry across three years was in the Galilee. Yes, He died. Yes, He was buried. Yes, He resurrected in Jerusalem. And John speaks mostly of the ministry that took place there. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this incredible ministry that went all around the Galilee Naphtali, Zebulun, that land saw a great light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. How about Genesis 22? Don't turn there, but you could. That amazing picture of Abraham taking his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, the very place of the crucifixion. Taking Isaac up there, a father, to sacrifice a son in a picture, a portent of what was coming, that the father would sacrifice his son exact same place on Mount Moriah as Jesus was crucified. How about Psalm 22? Try that one on for size. The whole thing resounds as of one speaking from the cross. Read it. It is a cross psalm. Or Isaiah 53, which details in excruciating detail the very crucifixion of Jesus long before crucifixion even existed. You could go on and on. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, saying, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a donkey's foal. And we know that into Jerusalem Jesus rode on the donkey's foal. And we're told even how he would be betrayed. Zechariah 11.13 Again, 500 or so years prior to Jesus, Zechariah proclaimed that this that there, there would be a betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Exactly what was paid to Judas for the betrayal of Jesus. It goes on and on and on. All I'm saying here is this. Bible prophecy fulfilled is prophecy done away with. A third of all Scripture is Bible prophecy. And in those prophecies, over 300 already fulfilled by Jesus, literally, I've asked you this before, how do you think the prophecies of His second coming will be fulfilled? I'm going to go with literally. And they too, one day soon, will become obsolete. All the prophecies of His return, prophecies of the kingdom, prophecies of what God is about to do next, will be fulfilled and will be obsolete. And back in 1 Corinthians 13, the same with tongues, the same with knowledge. In fact, all of the gifts, ministries, and operations of the Spirit, the things which some in Corinth were so overemphasizing, will then be rendered unnecessary. And you know what's going to be left? Love. Love is... Necessity. Love is personality. Love has longevity. It will never end. Verse 11. When I was a child, Paul says, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. Some of you wives are saying, yeah, my husband still does. When I became a man... I did away with childish things. Hey, for every child who has ever disdained growing up, or for every adult who ever decried the harshness of life, man, I just wish I could stay a kid. I wish I could go back to those easy, carefree days. For some of you, they weren't not. They weren't easy, carefree days. I wish I could just go back and, and live as a child again. Please understand, as Drummond put it, the world is not a playground. It is a schoolroom. He said, life is not a holiday. It's an education. And the one eternal lesson for us all is how better we can love. Cheryl and I just got back yesterday from doing a wedding renewal for Kirk and Mary Kennedy out on Orcas Island. It was, it was glorious. It was beautiful out there. We had a, just a wonderful time with them. If you don't know Kirk and Mary, Mary is kind of our right arm Israel tour planner. She gets what she wants. Rightly so. She worked with my wife. 
She's wonderful, and she's always here. You probably haven't seen Kirk here very much. You see, Kirk has MS. And so over the weekend, there they were together, and, and the renewal was... It was the first wedding renewal I've done in 27 years. Would that we'd see more. They've been married 30 years. And we went through this process, and, and I was just talking to Kirk about what is it like to have MS? And how do you deal with this day in and day out? Probably the most remarkable moment for me over the weekend was as Kirk and Mary were sitting there and we were going through the renewal ceremony. Toward the end of it, Kirk said, I have something I want to read. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out this little piece of paper and opened it on his knee. And he began to share all the things in their life and in their marriage for which he was grateful. And he got to MS. And he said, I am so grateful for MS. What? Yeah, because MS brought Mary and I to Anacortes. MS stopped my workaholic lifestyle and allowed me to be with my wife. MS introduced Mary and I to faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Kirk understands that this life is not a holiday or a playground. That we are here for one reason. And good or bad, wonderful or horrible, whatever your life circumstance is, it is short term and it is for the one purpose of knowing love who is Jesus. And all the rest is just chaff. All the stuff we get to do, the fun stuff and the holidays and the vacations and the laughter and all that. You know, it's nice, it's wonderful, it's a blessing. But knowing Jesus, that's the deal. And I would rather go through a lifetime of pain and misery and hardship and come out the other side knowing Jesus than have the good life here. And I believe that's what Paul is hinting at here. Man, when I was a child, that's kind of... I thought about all the... You know, I just want the best. When I became an adult, I gave up childish ways I set him aside by the way there may be a gentle pop here for the Corinthians as it recalls something Paul wrote earlier he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 and I brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men but as to men of flesh as to infants in Christ I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Understand that. This church that was obviously very gifted in the things of the Spirit, Paul says, should still be drinking milk. Maybe beyond a little pablum. But beyond that, you are so immature, he says. For you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Paul says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. In other words, time to grow up. Time to love with real love, not childish love. But the love of God that is greater than all things. Love is Christ-likeness coming to maturity. It's strong. It is certain. It's confident. It's true. It deepens our faith. It upholds hope. And it fixes your gaze on Jesus no matter what takes place in your life. Man, if you know the love of Christ, all the rest, fine. Bring it on. I have Jesus. Verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. i got to point this out. Dimly. That's the only appearance of that word in the New Testament. It's the only time you see this. The word in the Greek is enigmati. For now we see in a mirror as an enigma. An enigma. A riddle. What is dim about it? What, what is the riddle? I think Solomon begins to scratch at it for us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in their heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We all know there's an eternity. Oh, we may ignore it. We may want to sidestep it. You know, we, we may want to put it off as long as possible. But the truth is, there's not a man or woman I have talked to in my life that didn't know. Deep down inside, there is more. There is something else. That things will continue even beyond this world. We know this. God has set eternity in our hearts, and yet with an enigma, so that we can't figure out why we know there is. But okay, well, what's the deal? There's only one way 
that the enigma becomes explained, becomes understandable, and that is in Jesus Christ. In the love of God, which is seen in Jesus. Yes, we know there's an eternity, but the end is coming. And the enigma of today, the riddle that people struggle with, will be done away. And what does it? What removes the enigma? For now we see in a mirror dimly as an enigma, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. What a beautiful expression of relationship face to face. I will know Him fully just as I have been fully known by Him. And in this moment, believer or not, Jesus fully knows you. He knows you inside out. He knows everything there is to know about you. You may or may not know Him, but He knows you. And what He invites all of us to is that time where face to face, not only will we know Him, but we will be fully known by Him. What a remarkable moment that will be. And this is what I believe John meant when he wrote in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Oh, if I die, am I going to go to hell? Was I good enough in this life? Did I do enough good things to to make a way into heaven for myself? Fear. Man, I would hate to live that way. And by the way, if you're living that way, you don't have to. Because if you know Jesus... His perfect love casts out fear because, as John writes, fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Verse 13, But now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith will be replaced by His immediate presence. Hope will be replaced by the fulfillment of every promise God has ever spoken. Only love remains. Love is forever. No wonder, as Paul says, the greatest of these is love. And I would invite you this morning to accept that truth. To consider, perhaps, that God really does love you. Whether you deserve it or not, that's really beside the point. My children do not always deserve my love, but I always love them. I don't always deserve the love that is given to me and my family, but I am always loved there. Our God loves you. Can you accept that? Can you receive the love of Jesus for you this morning? Can you act on that love? By simply saying, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today. Because that definition of love... I want that. I want you to listen to him one more time. Matthew 22, 37. Listen to what Jesus said carefully. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Did Jesus know what he was saying? Well, of course he did. No, listen again. He says, on these two commands, loving God and loving each other, on these two depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, the whole thing depends on love. Did Jesus know what he was saying? What do you mean, Rick? The word depend here, in the Greek, it literally is translated everywhere else to hang. As in, on a cross. On these, on love, hangs the entire word. The law, the prophets of God. On love hangs everything. And on the cross hung Jesus in the ultimate expression of that love. Acts chapter 5 verse 30. Peter and the apostles, they spoke, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death, by hanging Him, same word, on a cross. Acts 10.39, Peter said, We're witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him, again, the same word, on a cross. 
So ultimately and literally the whole law and the prophets did hang upon the love of God as Jesus Christ was lifted up and crucified for the sins of this world. By the way, the last time that word is used is Galatians 3, verse 13, where Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The cross is the ultimate expression, the proof of the love of God, which we've just have described to us in 1 Corinthians 13.